or night now. We were scheduled to go back into demystifying the book of Revelation after our interesting series. Because of Olympia and gay marriage amendment and all that kind of stuff, I just really felt in my heart that it was important to take a day and talk about homosexuality. Talk about what God's issue is with it, how he looks at it. And the reason why is really important. In this particular period of time, there is so much verbiage that's coming out about what this is and why this is and what the Bible really says or doesn't say and, you know, how we're supposed to feel about this and all this kind of stuff. There's this deluge of information that's coming out and very little, if any of it, is actually Christian. So I just wanted to come at it from a genuinely Christian standpoint and just make the case for why Christians believe as they do, why God says what he does about it, and so on. Now, when I do that, I think we need to just lay a couple of really important foundation stones, though. The first one is this. We have to remember whose image we're being conformed to. In other words... Jesus is the one who handled all kinds of very difficult situations in ways that were extraordinarily loving. There is an adulterous woman that is brought to him. God hates adultery. He says it over and over and over. God hates adultery. But Jesus' response to this adulterous woman being brought by a bunch of men is, fine, whoever's got no sin, you cast the first stone. He confronts them about a problem. Yeah, he hates the adultery. But he handles it in a way that is extraordinary. Not compromised, but extraordinary. There's another time when Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of sinners. And the religious leaders are saying, Don't they understand, doesn't he understand who these people are? And how could he be sitting with them? And all this kind of stuff and everything else. And Jesus' response to him is, is, I didn't come for people that think they're healthy. And I'm paraphrasing now. You think you're healthy. You don't know you have need of me. You don't even care about me. These people, they know that something's going on in their life and they want help, and I came to help people that want help. There's another time when a prostitute, how does God feel about prostitution? On how many different levels? A prostitute comes to God, to, to Jesus, and pours out a vial of perfume on his feet, and the religious leader that is sitting with him at the table, whose house Jesus is in, the religious leader thinks in his own heart, doesn't he understand who this woman is? Is he so undiscerning as to not understand that she's making him unclean and all of these judgments upon her? And reading his thoughts, Jesus says to him, don't you understand that I came into the house and you didn't even wash my feet and here is this woman who has been forgiven much, loving me with everything she has. That's the image into which we are being conformed. Jesus is God and God is love and if we don't find an understanding that is overflowing in extraordinary ways, in surprising ways, with love, then we are not in his image. So too, if we do the buzzword of the day, tolerance, if we compromise something that is important to God, and usually we compromise it, and this is one of the main reasons I'm talking about today, usually we compromise the truths of God for this reason. We don't know what they are. <laughs> and so someone comes to us with a presentation, and we say, gee, that kind of makes sense to me. 
want you to just think about something right now because this is really important if we're going to get to where God actually is on this and if we're going to get to a place to where we can engage the culture and engage the, 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 the majority mindset right now, which it really is the majority mindset, and in the Christian church almost too. There's a separation that we need to make. And the separation that we need to make is between wanton sexuality, sexuality random, out of, you know, out of control, just Sodom and Gomorrah type sexuality that is just over the top, and what I might call modern day family, you know, or modern family, the television show, where the gay relationship in that television show has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with two people who are attracted, happens to be same sex, and they're in a committed relationship with one another. And I think, and I do think that to some degree that there's an age issue here that's very important to recognize. When I was growing up, if you talked about homosexuality, I don't ever remember talking about homosexuality in any serious way. It was always just as a subject of a joke. That's when I grew up. But you have to understand, people that are growing up in high school today, with everybody coming out and tolerance and the things that they're being taught and the way that they're being taught and everything, they don't see it in those terms. But now, now let me be clear here. Even high schoolers understand that when some kid is being flagrant and over the top and flamboyant and in your face and obnoxious about their sexuality, that they're just an idiot. That's not, that's not tolerant. That's just stupidity. That's just moronic behavior. And no less so if a heterosexual is doing it. Right? Conquest of how many women they've slept with or whatever. It's just idiotic behavior, right? The problem is, is that because a lot of kids are out, quote-unquote, and they're in, this, they're in this situation, what they're doing is, is they look at their friends and they say, it doesn't appear to me, I'm not saying there's not a sexual component to what your desire is, but it seems to me that there's something else that's happening in you, which is the same way I'm attracted to a woman, you appear to be attracted to someone of the same sex. Or the same way, you, know, you get my drift, right? You appear to be attracted to them. And do understand something, that's the most fundamental aspect of our natures. What God said was, is he made us in order to be one with us. And in order for us to be one with one another. And when someone is expressing a desire for someone to complete them, this is a real impulse. And this is not something that we can casually dismiss. I sent that email out and talked about that I was going to talk about this, and I can't tell you the number of people that, that said, you know, they've heard some of which I have to say about this, some of which you haven't heard and so on, but, but they just said, you know, my brother, my sister, my dad, my mom, my, you know what I mean, they're gay, and, and you know, and, and yeah, of course, there's some people that, that sort of Sodom and Gomorrah-ish, over-the-top sexual behavior, everybody condemns that except for just the very, very margins, right? People that just, you know, whether they know God or not. That kind of sexuality that just runs rampant, that did in Sodom and Gomorrah, that did in another place in Scripture where they ended up, you know, they, would, they couldn't get the man, and so they ended up raping a girl to death. We look at the Greek culture, we look at the Roman culture, we look at the French culture, we look at all the way throughout history, and we see in these times of prosperity that there is this, and, and I want to be careful about this because I think it's important for us to note, there is a slippery slope in sexuality, Right? I mean, let's be clear about this, and Scripture is talking about that slippery slope thing. This idea that when you open yourself up to certain behaviors and certain kinds of things, they feel good, <laughs> right? They do work, and, and frankly, they work pretty good, same sex. They, I mean, as far as feeling good, you may not like it, you may not be attracted to that, but it works, and it does put, there is this argument that is made in Scripture and in history that has to do with slippery slope. <laughs> 
that it can get into behaviors that just go over the top and into places that all of us would say, well, that's just too much. When you're raping somebody to death, wow, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong, and everybody gets that. So there is that aspect, and it is real, and it is important, and it, it, statistically you can get to it, and scientific and everything else. But let me propose something to you as Christians who want to engage our culture, who want to engage people who don't understand what problem God might have with it, who don't understand what the, what the real issues are from our perspective. Let me suggest to you that if that's the way that we think, if that's the presentation that we have, it doesn't resonate very deeply with people because they judge it too. They're saying, yeah, okay, go ahead and put that aside. What about the fact that this guy is attracted to another guy? He's not attracted to women. What are you going to do with him? And until we address that, I don't think that we're actually going to be able to engage our culture. If we want to accuse them of things that they themselves don't agree with, we're not going to ever be able to speak to them, are we? So I want to say something. I understand that there's all kinds of other issues that we could talk about, and we only have a certain amount of time today. With the Super Bowl, maybe just a slightly bit less. But I want to say something. I want to go to the most difficult possible place. I want to give the most possible to this understanding so that we can see how God feels about that. Because from there, everything else can be built. So what we're going to ask is really simple. We're just going to say, if there is a God, does he have a problem with it, really? And if he does, why? And whatever answer we come up with, it better be consistent with Hold it. We love because he first loved us. The way that we love is the way that we've been loved as sinners. And we better have, we better find that note. Or we're not singing the right song. All right? Cy Simon, what a great person to have pray for this sermon. Cy, my heart goes out to you as I know yours does to me to try and get this right in a very tricky area. So Cy, thank you for praying for the sermon and lifting up another church. Father God, we just thank you for bringing us together here as one body to hear your word. And Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit has a special uh, anointing on Kurt, Pastor Kurt, as he, uh, uh, he teaches us from your word on a very subject that's uh, near and dear to many people, Lord. So open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say and that uh, we will understand and uh, strongly walk in the way you want us to walk, Lord. And Father God, your word says to uh, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And in this regard, we pray for uh, Eastside Foursquare Church Amen. and Pastor DJ Vic that uh, they too will, uh, his word for them today will resonate in the hearts of the body. Thank you, Lord. We thank you again for bringing us together, Lord. We love you. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sai. 
I'm gonna say something I've said here before. There's a few things I'm gonna say, but hang in there if you think I'm repeating things because I'm not. I'm, I'm repeating certain aspects of things, but to try and get to places that we haven't actually talked about here at a depth that we haven't talked about it. So let me just say something that I have said before, and this is something that I really believe and you may take issue with it, but the bottom line is, if there is no God, there is no problem with homosexuality. That's just, I, I think you can argue natural law arguments, like for example, one of them is reproduction. You know, the, the, the purpose, if people don't get together and have babies, then the, the species dies. And let me just say something, if there is no God, so what? I mean, honestly, so what? And either way, the argument really isn't about everybody becoming homosexual, it's about whether or not some do, and whether that's a, a preference and a predilection, a, this nature and nurture debate which our kids are growing up with, right? Is it, were you Lady Gaga, were you born this way or were you made this way? And the statistics are very strong on something. That is that the nurture, the environmental, has an incredibly strong effect on sexual preference. It just does. And we've got to understand that as non, this is a, a viewpoint that Christians are very sensitive to because they say, see, it's always nurture. And the only thing that I want to say is, is I don't care if you want to say it's 99% nurture. If there's 1% that is of some other nature, that is of some other thing, of a preference that is, that is deeper than just something about a mother and a father issue or something or some abuse that might have happened or whatever, if there is a 1% thing out there, I still think everything I'm about to say right now is important to say because we have to deal with the most difficult with the one that goes right to the heart of who God made us to be, which is desire to be one with one another. See what I mean? So having said that, I, this, this idea of that you know, it's all about reproduction is, I think, problematic. And, and it's problematic because the people who, who are making babies are making plenty. Okay? I mean, we're populating the world just fine. Thank you very much. Okay? Too much if by some people's standards, right? So, so I want to say something about all those arguments, and if we had more time, we would do more depth on them. I do think there's people here that think about this very seriously and would have argument with me that there are arguments to be made outside of God which would say that homosexuality shouldn't be and homosexual marriage and blah, blah, blah. And, and the bottom line is, is that I think when you really push those arguments really hard, I think you're hard-pressed to come up with one that's compelling particularly to somebody that doesn't know that there's a God. I think in the end, our argument has to do with God, period. It has to do with something that God is trying to do. And that when we try and make it about other things, I think we're on the losing end of a stick. And if you don't believe me, just look at the culture. Because in, in a culture that is increasingly godless and increasingly doesn't understand what God's issue is, we're losing the day. And we're not just losing the day in the secular world. We're losing the day in the church. You do understand that, right? I mean, if you take a poll and ask people, should gays be able to marry, there's almost a majority of the church that says yes at this point in time. That's just the way it is. And we're losing the day because I think we're not actually making our argument in the only place that we really can and the only place we ever really should. Which is, if there's a God and he's got a problem with it, what is it? Because <laughs> once we come to understand that, it changes everything. So having said that, let's just, say that there is a God, and then let's just see what he has to say about it. And, and note something here. I could go to many, many different places in the Old Testament. A lot of people say, oh, it's hardly even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's not true. The homosexual behavior is mentioned over and over in the Old Testament. It's just that most of the times when it's mentioned, it could be classed in what I would call this Sodom and Gomorrah understanding of slippery slope, way out of control, way over the top. Even people that are oriented to, to, you know, to believe that maybe this is okay would still judge that because it's rampant sexual behavior that's out of control in a harmful manner manner. 
See that? Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, cultics, prostitution, etc. So if you take those out, you end up with, here's, here's a statement, okay, that God makes. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. Now note something. God does not say that sex is bad, and he does not say that sex between a man and a woman is bad. He does, however, say that sex outside of marriage is a detestable sin. Adultery, fornication, etc. He's very clear about the fact that when you go, when you're, when you're, you know, there's one context in which he's saying sex is something useful and not just, you know, pleasure and not just where we're going to get to, where I'm going to take us, okay? But the bottom line that I want to do is, is this is unequivocal. People can argue, there's literally, <laughs> I heard this one person, because I did a lot of research on this to just make sure I understood what the world was saying. There was one person, and this is not an uncommon argument, by the way, in fields that are trying to come against what the Bible has to say about this. What they do is they say, the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was not actually the homosexual behavior. The problem was, is that there's this very strong impulse towards, a very strong rule of, of code of ethics about um, uh, hospitality. The owner of the house had a duty to protect the people in the house, and the people who were coming to have sex with those two people, the owner, they were violating the owner's hospitality rule. Now let me just say something. That's a lot like saying that the problem with murder is the hole that you put in someone's shirt when you shoot them. Okay? It isn't the shirt. It's the death. It's the, it's the, it's the obvious thing. Okay? And, and what I want to say is I think, I think in this day and age we've become miraculously good at bad argument. Okay? In fact, let me take you to another place. And this is an article that many people read in here because you sent it to me. Okay? Here's another place where he said it. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man is with a woman. Both men have committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. They're guilty of a capital offense. Do you think God has a problem with this? It's, you cannot get around the wording and the language here. But now watch how somebody might try and do this in the world. A rabbi who wrote in the Seattle Times, many of you read the article. And what he tried to say was, look, I'm a rabbi, so I'm not going to go to the New Testament. I'm just going to take the Old Testament. And here's what I want to say. First of all, there's only two places where God ever says anything about it that is directly about homosexuality, not just about wanton sexuality. And these are the two places. And gee, if he only mentioned it two times in all those pages, he must not think it's a very big deal. Now, this is an example of bad argument because I'll give you an example of something that God only mentions once, rape. Does anybody in here want to make the argument that because God only, argued it, only said it once that he doesn't care that much about it? Well, of course we wouldn't do that. We, we take these things and we take them to places that are just ridiculous. They're not just ridiculous, they're... The Bible says that we can't eat crustaceans, shrimp. Yet we eat shrimp. Oh, well, the New Testament says you can't eat all foods. Oh, well, the Bible says that slavery, the Bible condones slavery. And we don't do slavery anymore, so why would we, if we don't do that, we wouldn't do this. Actually, the Bible doesn't condone slavery, it acknowledges it. In fact, what the Bible does with slavery is it undermines it completely. Because it says the slave is not property. The slave is a human being, and you will be held accountable to how you treat that human being, period. And it is that argument that Wilberforce took and undermined slavery. This is a human being, not three-fifths of a human being, not property. This is a human being. 
That's what the Bible has to say about slavery. So again, it's a fallacious argument, and we can go on and on and on with these kinds of things, but let me not, okay? I want to get to the cool thing that God is trying to do, as opposed to argue ad infinitum and ad nauseum about this other stuff. Do let me show you, though, that it's not just an Old Testament thing. Don't you realize that those who do wrong do not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols who commit adultery, who are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. Now, some people are trying to say, well, that homosexuality right there, that's pedophilia. That is just flatly false. Do the word study. You, you, it's, it's not that it doesn't encompass pedophilia. They're saying, well, that's the primary word. It's, the, the way that they use the language, it's just not true. You will never find a, a genuinely, just a person without an agenda. And, and again, the, the, the people that think Christians are always have an agenda, and everybody always does have an agenda, right? That's one of the truths of postmodernism, okay? You, you can't get past your own agendas. But the bottom line is, if you're just trying to be sober about what the word says, that word means homosexual in the way that we think of them not in the way that they were culturally. In fact, the fact that Paul has brought up other kinds of sexual sins is he's dealing with these other kinds of things. And he's getting to this one also being a problem and saying thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusive, cheap people, none of these are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And now let's just recognize something as Christians. All of us have violated that. And even after we've been saved in some fashion or another. And so thank God for a Savior. Right? But bottom line is, it's very clear that in the New Testament too, the laws for people who are sexually immoral, they practice homosexuality, slave traders, liars, promise breakers, anything who does, anything that contradicts wholesome teaching. And if you're wondering really what that means, just like it was in the Old Testament, it was unequivocal because God describes the act, not labeling it, but describing the act. So too does Paul, who wrote those last two statements, say this in Romans. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex instead and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with the other men. As a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. This is unequivocal. This is not, this is not soberly debatable. If there is a God, if he wrote the scripture, he's made it clear. There isn't, there isn't a debate to be had here. However, and watch this, there's a revelation to be had here about what really is going on. We understand that in all of these passages, we're talking to some degree about that slippery slope, Sodom and Gomorrah-ish, you know, ramping it up and getting into a place that's just out of control. But in this upper part, he says this, so God abandoned them to do whatever their shameful things desire in their hearts. As he's going to say again, I want you to what he's doing right here is he's going through Romans 1. It starts at verse 18 and it goes to the end of the chapter. I won't take the time to read the whole thing. But what he's doing is, is that he's saying, look, people can have a God orientation or they can have another orientation. When you push God out of the center of your orientation, the orientation that you come to is what I want, self. Now understand something. When you've got God 
and you're focusing on God, we are finite. We only understand so much. God is infinite. And when we go and when we're, we're going after God, we can go deeper and deeper ad infinitum. We can go forever into God because he is infinite. It's a lifetime journey to come to know God more fully. But so is true with the self. The self and the things that we want are very, very complicated things. And you can spend a lifetime on a sexual exploration, right? You can do all kinds of things. The self is also a very deep field that can be mined for a very long time. What God is saying is what happens is, as a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. Now, that's not just homosexual. That's talking about depraved sexuality in general. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator. They worshiped and served each other. They worship and serve essentially self. That's what he's saying. And when you push God out of here, you, there's this whole thing to get into, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But they go to the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. This is why God abandoned them to shameful desires. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying when you're going after God, there is a presence of God in you that restrains urges. Let's just, again, be careful. You may not like homosexuality for yourself, but it's the same ultimate physical pleasure as making, you know, other gender for you personally. It's not that it's unpleasurable. That's not the point. The point is, what he's saying is, is when you're going after God, God does things inside of our hearts, inside of our minds, inside of the way that we think. God does things that draw us into a holy place, which we're going to get to in one second. When we push God aside, we're left to our own urges, that is talking in large degree about this slippery slope that we keep talking about, right? I mean, the definition of perversion, this is the best definition that you ever hear. The definition of perversion is when it takes more to get to the same place. You get a certain pleasure out of it, the next time it takes more. When you break taboos, when you do things like this, this is the path that it takes. And this is the slippery slope argument. And that's a lot what's being talked about right here. But in the end, again, that's not what we're actually talking about. We're going after, what about a, an attraction to a human being? Not saying there's not a sexual component, but saying there's more than just a sexual component. What are we supposed to do about that? And what God is saying is, is that you can identify, you can become attracted to anything if it gives you pleasure. So there's an abandonment up to a process a thing that's happening. And again, in, in prosperous cultures, you see it over and over again. Greece being an outstanding example, Rome being almost as bad, French, you know, on and on. Prosperous cultures get into a place to where people push aside God, end up in things of self, deeper and deeper and deeper into self. But when we start talking this way, we're starting to get to where God actually is and what he's actually trying to do in marriage. Remember something. This is, this is, we're to the why now. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. 
How many of you have been married for any length of time and could say a big amen to the fact that living with someone of the opposite sex is an enormous mystery <laughs> which gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time, <laughs> right? Now he's saying this is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So that's our clue. There's something about oneness and what God's actually trying to do with love in oneness. Now, you're going to see me do something which some of you have seen before. Hang in there. I'm going quickly on it. Other people that haven't seen it, you'll understand it. Fine. But just hang in there because, I'm, again, I'm get, getting to a place that I think is going to be, I think it'll be that thing where you go, oh. So, now watch. Here's, here, whenever I do premarital, I always do this hand gesture thing, right? I start off and I say, here's what God's doing in marriage. He starts off, two people wandering around in the world and they're looking for somebody and they're looking for something and they're trying to fulfill and they're trying to do, and all, ooh, well that kind of, ooh, and then, but then they look around a little bit more, and ooh, ooh, and then they look around some more, ooh, ooh, and then they get, and then, and then, okay, there you go. They've become one. They've connected, right? It's the soulmate. It's a, you took it, the rib was taken out of the side, and I feel with this person like my rib has been reattached, and I am, boom, and here we are, and boy, there is just, watch, if you're under 21 years old, and you are in, you come into this kind of love, and you go into a burger joint where there's booths, not chairs, booths on one side, of, where do you sit? You always sit on the same side when you're younger. When you get older, why do you always sit across from each other? See, when you're young, it's sameness. It's we look at the world, and that person over there, that is a cool person. That person, not so cool. And you both agree. That thing is really great. That thing is really horrible. This thing is that. This thing is those. See, and in all these dimensions, you are different. I got it. We all get it. There's differences that keep you interested. But the bottom line is, it's an awful lot about I found the person that, in the more superficial way, of, completes me. I found my soulmate. I found this person that's like just like me. Right? And so you get married. And then you have a honeymoon. And you stay in this kind of oneness where you can't tell where one stops and the other begins. And you stay in that kind of relationship for how long? It just depends on how long the honeymoon's going to last. But one day you wake up. <laughs> and wake up is the right word. And you look in the bed. And you say... Who is that? <laughs> right? You know, what's, what's the old, uh, the, the talking head song? Who is this life? Come on, somebody's got it. Uh, I won't do it, okay. But you know, you know, you wake up and you go, what is going on? Who is that person? Oh my gosh, right? Like, like we were like this, but all of a sudden I'm discovering that though the marriage, the pastor said we were one, there's really still two people in here, right? This is phase two. And at phase two, what's going on is, is that you're starting to recognize there's differences. Now, here's the way that we are. You love that other person, and you realize you're screwed up. So you start working on yourself, because you've got to change in order to be better for that person. Got it. Now, understand something. This is phase one and part of phase two. And to right now, a homosexual relationship between two people that are attracted to each other, and it's not purely about sexual, is identical. Do you understand that? This coming together and feeling like 
that you complete each other and you found your soulmate and there's a similarity and everything else and even to coming to understand that there's a difference between the two of you as you enter into a committed relationship, as we call it, or as they call it, right? But here's where it finally starts to differentiate. When it has to do with things of the personality, there's all kinds of different personalities in the world. How many different kinds are there? Just about exactly as many as people there are. And some people have more than one personality, so it's even more than that. <laughs> Depends on the time of the month. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Come on! Come on! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. All kinds of different personalities in the world, and getting to know one another is a big deal. A big deal. Such a big deal that I couldn't confirm this for sure, but I'm sure that it's right because I used to be in publishing. The largest segment of publishing, besides, by the way, religious material, the Bible in particular, which swamps every other category so badly that it is by far the largest category of publishing in the world. But second to that is what? How do you get along in a marriage? How do men and women get along? Because men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And this is the first place at which we begin to divulge from a same-sex attraction. The personality differences can be very much the same. I hate going to marriage seminars, and I finally confessed it one day, even though we do a lot of them here. And, and I, but I'm very careful to watch for something, and here's why. Because when Julie and I go to a marriage seminar, it always flips. Right? They talk about how guys are and how girls are, and we're always the other way. And it's just maddening. And I've always been a little afraid to say that because I'd be made fun of. But the bottom line is, is I go to the back and Dave Brunk, a pretty manly guy, Dave Brunk goes, that happens to Jan and me too. I hate that. And then John Batterman walks up. John Batterman who could beat Dave and I up at the same time. <laughs> a man's man. John Batterman says, I hate marriage seminars for exactly that reason. You know, I'm always the girl and she's always the guy and so many different things. I hate that. Let me say something. There's a lot of bad marriage advice out there. This just has to do with personality. And by the way, God's trying to make everybody one. Same gender and spouse and friends and work people and everything else. And so the fact is, there's a whole lot of books on different personalities and how to get together. And we do strength finders and, and we do all kinds of things. And boy, all those things are incredibly useful. And you can't hardly write enough books about how to understand how to get along with other people because it is so stinking complicated. And it takes a lot of work if you're going to stick it out. But here's the difference between a marriage and a work relationship. No, the difference between a relationship and a friendship. If you're having a friendship with somebody and at some point in time this stuff starts becoming this stuff and it starts becoming contentiously this stuff, you just stop being friends. No big deal. In today's world, with marriage as a contract, not a covenant, you get divorced. Because you're not getting along anymore. We've grown apart. Which is why what is absolutely essential to understanding God's purpose in all of this is to understand covenantal marriage, not contractual. A contract is as long as it benefits you and me, we stick it out. A covenantal is no matter what happens. A covenantal is we are killing this animal, splitting it apart, and we are walking through it together and may it be done to you or me if either one of us breaks that covenant for any reason. Now understand something. 
you cannot really understand who God is unless you understand our covenantal God. Because how many of you here have violated your own conscience and violated dramatically your relationship with Christ and God and the Holy Spirit who was trying to keep you from whatever it is that you were doing, from getting angry to sexual to whatever? How many of you, don't raise your hands because it's just everybody. The bottom line is, is that we have all violated him, which is why, by the way, when God made a covenant with mankind about saving them, do you realize that he didn't bring mankind into the covenant? He put Abraham asleep, and God went through it as the firebrand in the smoking pot. He went through the cut animal with himself because he said, I'm making a covenant with myself to save you. Now, we could go a lot deeper into this, but I'm telling you something. You've got to understand something. Unless you understand what a covenant is, and unless you enter into a covenantal place in your relationship, when the differences happen, you will not survive. And then you'll have to go meet up with somebody else and try and do it all over again. There's a covenantal aspect here that needs to be had because the things that are the most difficult are always the things that are the most rewarding. And we're getting down to a very, very fundamental place about what it is to be human in relationship with God. And interestingly, the place where that difference shows up the very most is sexually. It actually is showing up in all kinds of other places. Men are from Mars, women are from Jesus. You ever heard that men are waffles and women are spaghetti? You know what that means, right? You know that's biologically true. Because what happens is, is when the boy becomes a boy in the womb and the testosterone is released, that testosterone goes in the brain development. It severs connection between right and left brain. And so guys literally are not as connected in their thinking, which is to say they're compartmentalized, a waffle, right? Put a little butter here, a little syrup there. You see what I mean? That's a compartment, that's a compartment, that's a compartment. Now what are women? you know, right? Just all tied up, tangled up. Okay, when they have one thought, I was talking about this, why are you talking about that? What's going on with the, you know, you, medic, you, you know, it's everything. It's everything at once because their brains are literally connected in this incredibly important way. And so they're literally thinking difference. Now that is a major difference between men and women that you're not going to find in terms of difference in a same-sex relationship. Because you're going to have two incredibly together, two, two spaghettis or two waffles. And they're going to get what a waffle is, and they're going to get what a spaghetti is. But a waffle can't really understand what spaghetti is, and a spaghetti can't really understand what a waffle is. Let me take this much deeper to an to a, to a absolutely one that you cannot debate. Bruce, can we do something? Do you need something? Are you coming forward for a reason? Oh, okay. All right. I'm feeling awkward about it. Maybe if you could quit moving, if you could just kind of stop. Can you do that? Do you want to say something, Bruce? I love you. If you want to say something, go ahead. I feel like you do. Okay. And do you think I'm saying something different than that? He said, I think gay is wrong. Okay. Okay. I agree. And I'm getting to that point. 
I get it. And I know that you understand passionately and feel passionately about this, Bruce. Can you, if you'd let me finish, I think I'll get to a place that'll be very satisfying to you, and I think it'll be something that'll equip our body to be able to think and respond and do that. Is that all right, Bruce? Thank you very much. All right. Sexually. Okay. A, a, a little while ago, I talked about the difference in sexuality. Here's the truth about sexuality. Okay. A guy knows what a guy wants sexually. You may not want to do that with another guy. And a woman knows what a woman wants sexually. And you may not want to do that, but you do know what it feels like. Do you understand that a man can never understand what is happening in a woman's body, what she's feeling physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically? A woman can never understand what's happening in a guy's body physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. We can not understand it. There is a thing about sexuality, which is why it comes down to that. Because it is the place where it is so incredibly obvious that there is a huge difference. Remember I did a sermon on sexuality a while ago, and I used a lot of research because I didn't want to just be spouting things that are Christianese. I wanted to spout what the world has to say about it in their research, and here's what they have to say about it. Birds do it. This is actual researchers saying this, by the way. This is not just a funny little saying. Birds do it, bees do it, and men do it any old time. But women will only do it if the candles are scented just right and their partner has done the dishes first. Now, this is true. Now, watch. Now, watch. This is more deep on the research. What turns women on? Not even women always seem to know. Women's desire is more contextual, more subjective, more layered on a lattice of emotion. Men, by contrast with women, don't need to have nearly as much imagination. Sex is simple and straightforward for them. Can I illustrate this? Because I think that does it perfectly. <laughs> I love this. You see the switch, and it has on, off. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> on, off. The women notice that they're not even on and off switches. They're all dials. And everything has to be dialed in just exactly perfectly and just wonderfully. And oh, my God, who could be this such a good lover? Okay? You, you know what I'm And here's what the real key is, is there is a difference which is insurmountable. And now I'm going to get to a place which is going to be very difficult for a lot of people that are married in this congregation. I love you. I want you to just hear soberly what I'm about to say here because this is important. It's all right. Will you guys just leave him? Okay. I just don't want any more distraction. Thank you. All right. Now watch. I want to take you to a place. This is really important. When women and men first get together and become sexually active, they're like rabbits. particularly if they're not married. Statistically, this is true. The truth about sexuality is the instant a woman enters a secure relationship, marriage, covenantal, protected, the instant that she does that, her sex drive begins to plummet. Four years in, a German study found fewer than half the women wanted regular sex, and after 20 years, only 20% did. This is such a huge problem. You can get into situations where a man is just completely insensitive to the wife on one end of the spectrum and he's dominating the relationship. I'm going to have sex whether you want it or not. Just roll over and let's go. Okay? 
And you can get into the other side of it, which is also fairly common, unfortunately, which is the woman is essentially the one that's leading the relationship, and the relationship has become essentially sexless. I've had, you can't believe the number of men that I've had come to me and say, was it bait and switch? You know, maybe we shouldn't have made love before we were married, but boy, before we made marriage, she liked it a lot. And then over the years, it just, the desire just went down. And I feel like bait and switch. Was she just doing that because she didn't really like it then, like she doesn't like it now? Was she just trying to get me to provide for her? Oh, my God. Can I make it clear to you men that might be thinking that? That's not what's going on in her. Just like it said earlier, she doesn't even know what's going on in her. There's just this thing that is happening inside of her. And, and again, I get that this is research, and so there's, there's aberrations to the norm. But what we're talking about is there is a very real thing that is taking place in a marriage which is incredibly deep and fundamental, and that is the sex is falling apart. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do when it's not easy? What are you going to do when it's not fun? What are you going to do when someone really, really, really wants something and the other person really, really, really doesn't? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's what God is trying to do. Right there. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? Remember we talked about phases? First phase is this one where it's a lot about being alike. Second phase is about differences. You know what third phase is? I'm, I, I don't think I want to change anymore, so I'm going to find other ways to get fulfilled. You can have an affair, but you can just get a hobby. You can do all kinds of other things to be fulfilled. That's phase three, but ultimately those things don't fulfill because they're just imitations of the real. And it isn't until phase four when something else kicks in. This kind of love is a love of same to a degree we have no idea about. And as the old saying goes, you have to fall out of love with who you think you married so that you can fall in love with the person you actually married. Phase four is this. Phase four is that moment when you have come to the end of yourself. My grandmother says it wonderfully. She's now dead, so she doesn't say anything like this, but but used to say it, and used to say it wonderfully. She said, when you're in your teens, if there's a wall, that's a challenge, go through it. When you're in your 20s, it's still a challenge, but the challenge is going through walls is not so pleasant, so you figure out how to go around and above. When you get into your 30s, he says, that's the worst time of your life. Sorry about people in their 30s. And she says, the reason why is because you're old enough to know you ain't all that, but you're not so old that you can't become all that. You're old enough to know that you're not as great as you thought you were, but you still think you might be able to become president if you could just get this thing straightened out. So you try really hard. And she said, it's just beating your head against a wall. She said, the 40s are the most incredible decade because you finally become fully cognizant of who you actually are, your weaknesses and your strengths. And you become comfortable in your own skin. And you start enjoying life. And she said the 50s would be even better if it weren't for the fact that your body starts hurting so much. (laughs) 
And I want you to think through that. See, here's what we're saying. It's in this fourth phase. This is a love of saying. But in the fourth phase, this is where you've come to an end of yourself and you realize that you're not certain things and you realize you ain't all that and you realize your lack and you become fully cognizant of the end of yourself. And then you look at your mate and you find out who that person is. Oh my God. They're everything I need. When we're first in love, same, same thing. When you get to phase four, there's a hole in my life. I have a need. And God has brought the perfect fit to truly complete me, to make me whole, to make me one in fullness. This is a picture of my mom and dad. I thank you for that all. Isn't it? Look at them. I was back for Christmas and my dad, out of the blue, we were just talking about stuff, hardly even talking. And my dad said to me, Kurt, my life has become all about her. I just don't want to do anything but be whatever she needs. I want to be everything for her. And if you talk to my mom, she says, all I want to be is everything for him. This is a completely different kind of love. This one is a love of same. This one is a love of other. Completely other. Completely different. If you knew my mom and my dad, oh my God. <laughs> Love you, mom and dad. <laughs> They're so different. It's unbelievable how different they are. But I have been one of the few people that has had the privilege of watching two people grow together. Not by overlapping one another, but coming to understand what the other person is and that that is God's answer to their need that he gave them as a gift and to come to appreciate it because it's other, because it isn't them and it will never be them and it cannot be them. Selves. So it has to be the other person. Now why is this so important to God? Really simple. Here's what it looks like, those four phases with God. Here's God right here. You'll notice he'll stay the same the whole time now. Here's God right here. Here we are wandering around in the world and we see him and oh, he's interesting but we're still interested in other things and all. And finally one day we fall in love with him and we become one with him, the kind that we think of. This is the kind of same. I call this the stage of the God of the parking spaces. You know, you're late for something and, you're, and you, you gotta get something at the grocery store and so you say to God, oh God, can I get a parking space close up and it's this huge store and there's this huge parking lot and you pull into the very closest aisle that you can, hoping that maybe it'll work out, and sure enough, the person right in front of the door, the closest possible space in the entire parking lot, pulls out so that you can pull in. And you say, God, you know everything, everything, everything about me. This is wonderful. You and I are just alike. And then you wake up, and you discover, 
he ain't like you at all. He just loves you. And you start working on yourself and the differences, and trust me, these differences go way past anything that you will ever discover in a same-sex relationship. And I don't say that judgingly. I say that on the pure facts. The difference between a man and a woman from sexuality up. Now, there's all kinds of personality differences that are still there too. And those are intergender, intergender, right? Have to do with friendship and everything else. But there is something about a man and a woman becoming one which goes beyond what same gender can ever get to. And if you want to know what's more other than the spouse that you married 30 years ago and you can't figure out who they really are at all, just go find out who God really is. Because he's more other than you've ever even begun to think and imagine. He is utterly other. And he's trying to take you through a process that takes a covenantal commitment on his part. Because we turn and we start looking for other ways to fulfill it, don't we? And God is the one that lets none of those ever fulfill. Because he's trying to bring us to an end of ourselves. So that one day we look at him and we say, you're who I need. I know me. You're what I need. Utterly, completely. That's God's heart. That's what he's trying to do. This is why he hates homosexuality. He doesn't hate it because he has some purient, homophobic reaction. He hates it because it's less for you. And God hates anything that's less than the fullness that he has for you. Thank God. Because he'll turn us over and he'll let us try it and find out that there's an end to it. Even the homosexuality. There's an end. It doesn't fulfill. It leads to places that are worse that you didn't want to go. How did I get here? God, I am in so much need. God, come and help me. 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 God wants to come and help. He just needs us to know that we need help. Otherwise, we're like those Pharisees that are saying, well, you know, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're just too stupid to know it. Yeah, you are. We all need him, which takes me to my final thought. If this is true, what I'm saying, if this is the fundamental, if this is the deepest heart, there's probably somebody out there smarter than me that's kicked to an even deeper place. But this is a pretty deep place. And this is a way of engaging the culture in a way that doesn't have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah that they're not, building, they're not bearing witness to. It has to do with even the oneness that they are bearing witness to and they should be. And we can communicate a better oneness. We can communicate a deeper purpose and a deeper thing. But what about, what about the person that simply is never going to find that because they're not attracted to the other sex. Well, let me just ask you, what about the single person? How are they ever going to find this? Well, they're going to be in relationship with God if they're going after him. And they're going to go all the way through the phases and they're going to come to understand just like the person that's married. 
The person that's married has just got an additional aid. Let me make it really clear. The people that are married need more help. The people whom God has gifted for singleness can get there more quickly and more easily without all the pain. And you say, well, what about the joys of marriage? Oh, man, thank God for the joys. But do let me do let me make it clear, and the Bible does too. The joys to be had in a genuine relationship with God are greater than the joys to ever be had between a man and a woman or any two people. Those are the deepest ones of all. The other one's a distraction in a very real way. That's what the Bible says. Okay, Kurt, but I don't feel called. I'm a person with a same-sex attraction. I don't feel called to celibacy. Can we make an agreement between all of us that now that we have a way of communicating God's heart on something, that we will refuse to be drawn into a superficiality when we talk to somebody who has a same-sex attraction? Because here's one of the arguments that you will hear quite often. You know, everybody has a cross to bear. You know, I was born, literally, I am born with, a, with, a, with an orientation genetically towards alcoholism. I've got it in my family. So I have a predilection to it, so I have to be careful about that. Some people have it really bad. Some people have actually expressed the gene in a way that they become alcoholics, and they need to go the whole life without having alcohol. And so we say, look, they have to deny themselves. Can we all agree that it's facile to say that a person that has to deny themselves from drink, as hard as that is, and believe me, that can be really stinking hard. But can we all agree that that is still existentially more superficial than a person who's having to deny their sexuality? that they were created to be a creative being, to express themselves in a certain way, and they don't feel called to not do that, and they want to do that, and they're not gonna be able to do that because they're not attracted to the opposite sex wherein it is okay with God? Can we all agree? Can, in fact, can we do this? Can anybody find anything that is more existentially difficult? Seriously. Tell me any other struggle that a person might have for the rest of their life that is more difficult than that. Because I don't think there is one. There probably is. But I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm figured it out. Smart people, I think Kathy's trying to tell me there is one, but I can't figure out what it is. Can I just say something? We need to come with that heart of Christ. We need to have splangnitzomai. What's splangnitzomai? It's not feeling sorry for someone. It's having your guts turn over with the difficulty that that person is facing. Is that what we do for the person that is struggling with the same-sex attraction? You know the people that are doing that? People that have a close friend who has tried really, really, really hard, even in God, to get free of this and has never been able to do it to this day. If you've got somebody like that, and I do, then in Christ, your guts ought to turn over in an intercession for them. Thank God you don't have to go through that, but they do, and would you stand in the gap for them? Because that's what it's going to take for this thing to turn. Not a, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's, a, it's whatever. It is a wanting God's best for them and not settling for a second best that will not get them to the depth of God that they need to get to. This is the life that we have to lead. This is the burden that we ought to carry. And when somebody wants to call you a homophobe, let them. 
if your actions and your reactions are true to the love of Christ, to the empathy, to the splenitzomai that's going on inside of you, it will belie the accusation against you of a stupid charge. Your love will be clear. And if someone comes to you and says, what am I supposed to do, Kurt? We really only have one answer. Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that it might not be a struggle for the rest of your days. For anybody to say that Exodus International has never brought a person to reorientation of, in a very healthy and wholeful and good way, for anybody to say sexual orientation cannot be changed, that's just stupid. We have all kinds of examples of it. But for any Christian to turn around and say the opposite thing, which is everybody can be changed that way, that also has a certain stupidity and ignorance in it. I'm not saying it's not possible because in Christ all things are possible. But what I'm saying is, is that the depths of the difficulty of it, can't we just have charity about the struggle without a compromise? Because we're going after God's best for them. Without compromise. But with a depth of love, a prayer, an intercession, even when they're hating you for it. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? While we were enemies, he gave his life. We're the ones who can love because he first loved us. We're the ones that can really love the way God would love. And I would say to anybody that is struggling with this and hearing my voice, and I know lots of people will see this, hear this, and to anybody who's struggling with this, I would say one thing. For you and for me, the only answer is Christ. I put him at the center of my focus, and I go after him with everything I've got. And I think that my struggles, as great as they may be to me, are less than yours. And so I pray for you. But I also tell you that my hope for you is not to be found in anything but Christ. His ability to transform us. His ability to make us into his image. That's our hope. And whenever we get anywhere else with our hope, it's sure to come up short. But when we go there, let me just say, somebody may struggle with this for the rest of their life. A reward waits for you that is incalculable. The people who go through more do have a bigger reward. That's biblical. I'm thankful I don't. But I hold out the hope and the truth and the promise that God holds out for all of us. Persevere. Find him. Find him ever more deeply. He will do miracles, and if the miracle doesn't happen in your lifetime, he is still true. And when you get done with it all, you will not have a complaint against him.